Ramble. Hey everyone, welcome to a very special episode of The Tripod. Today I have four incredible guests. They are Asian American women who I work alongside and are friends with. You might have seen the documentary we just released, We Need to Talk About Anti-Asian Hate. Unfortunately, towards the end of production, the Atlanta spa shootings happened, so I wasn't able to dedicate an entire chapter specifically focused on misogyny against Asian women. So I thought it'd be a great idea to make sure that we address this in a platform where all of y'all have the room to speak your minds. So I'm just going to moderate as little as possible and let you have the floor. For listeners who might not know who you are, can you introduce yourselves? Sure. Hi, guys. My name is YB. Um, I I actually was born in Korea, but I moved to America when I was 12. So I say I'm from L.A. and Korea both, but I grew up here. Hi, guys. My name is Alexandria. Um, I was born and raised in L.A., my mom is a Korean immigrant. She came here when she was about eight years old. Um, and my dad is white. He's born and raised in California. So I mixed um, and grew up in LA my whole life. Hi, I'm Aiko. Uh, I'm from uh, Alexandria, Virginia. It's where I grew up and then I moved to LA a few years ago. You're actually from Virginia as well, right, Kathleen? I am from Virginia, Yay! not too far from Alexandria. That's 703 so... represent. Oh, um, yeah. I am yeah from Northern Virginia. Both of my parents are uh, Chinese immigrants. And I work with all of y'all in some capacity. So three of you actually worked on the anti-Asian hate documentary with me. Aiko did all of the amazing illustrations oh, and good. graphics. YB <laughs> edited and Alexandria was co-producing. And then um, Kathleen, interestingly enough, Basically produced everything I did before I was even online. We, she was oh. the producer on the I'm Gay video. Wow, really? Like coming yeah, out video, yeah. Awesome. Wait, was I, a reunion. I, I think I saw you in the, because you guys did an, another video about how you made oh, yes, that. Oh, yeah. I think I saw you in yes. there as well. That was me. We go oh way gosh. back. We go way back. You want to hear something really Asian? Yeah. Oh, Kevin, how did we meet? <laughs> oh, we were working at an upscale dim sum restaurant <laughs> called <laughs> Bao. Perfect. Yeah. Yes. So talk about being immediately cast into a position where in West Hollywood, of all places, they were hiring what? Like young, attractive, uh, American-friendly Asian people. Yeah. Well, honestly, they did such a good job hiring, though, because we're all really close still. Yeah. So. We've hung out since then. Nice. Yeah. Now, for our topic today, we are you know, just going to speak from our hearts, and I want you to uh, know that we don't represent the vast diversity of voices on this topic. We are just a small selection. Um, and for those who are listening, we might be delving into some very serious issues, including things about race, gender, sexuality, and uh, there might be some talk about sexual assault. So just be prepared because we want to make sure that we honor um, some very serious issues that oftentimes go unspoken about, particularly from Asian women. Uh, before we get into it, I am going to take a quick break. And when we get back, I want to start talking first about what happened last week in Atlanta. On March 16th, 2021, a series of mass shootings occurred at three massage parlors or spas in the Atlanta area. This was just last week. And we found out that six of the eight victims were, in fact, Asian 
American women. I'd like to know what your first immediate reaction was when you saw that the majority of them were Asian. Um, for me, unfortunately, I, I kind of was influenced, I think, by the news articles that I was reading. And obviously, and I think still now, a lot, a lot of um, outlets were saying that it wasn't race-related. Mm. And so, you know, I myself have had like a lot of issues kind of um, even really accepting that hate crimes are happening against our community. And so this was just another example of me being like, well, maybe it's not, maybe, you know, and I, that was kind of the thought process that I, that was going through my head. And I, maybe it was denial, maybe I was influenced, maybe, you know, I, I don't know, it was just a mix of those types of emotions. Um, for me, this is another sad thing. I wasn't surprised because it's been just happening so many times lately. And I actually asked my mom if she heard the news in Korea because four of the women were Korean, I think. Um, and then I asked her, like, was this on the Korean news? How did they react? And she said, honestly, the Korean news did show it, but Koreans aren't surprised either because America has mass shootings all the time. They thought this just was another shooting. Like, they weren't even surprised. We just had a mass shooting in Boulder, Colorado exactly. this yeah. week. So um, it is unfortunately uh, something that's also very specific to the American experience. Mm -hmm. Now, what's interesting is you just had two very distinct perspectives. Um, Kathleen presented that she was questioning immediately if it was even a hate crime because of the way we've been taught about racism not existing against Asians, mm -hmm. while YB was expressing the side that was just really not surprised, maybe particularly since we were <laughs> neck deep in this documentary. We were literally <laughs> finishing the documentary. Um, I'm curious, how did you, Alexandria, feel when you saw the news? Um, I was angry. Um, oh, here it comes. <laughs> um, That's okay. I think I was just really angry and really upset because, especially as more stories came out, like you kind of see that as your mom, like all of those women were like either young parents or they had families or it's just upsetting. So I, I think I was just angry and upset. Echo, how did you feel? <laughs> This is open. Uh, you express yourself. Two minutes crying, in. Is okay. <laughs> crying is okay. Um, yeah, I think I had a similar reaction where I was like, like I was pissed, like I was upset that someone would ever do that. And then also just like everything leading up to it. Like I wasn't surprised either, but um, yeah, I, I also like, I already have social anxiety. So I was like scared to go outside anyway, but I was scared even more just after seeing that and um, scared for like people that I love who are not even in the same state as I am. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, it's, yeah, it's really hard to process to that level of anger that just kind of washes over you when you see something like that happen. So much of the conversation comes back to this idea of silence for Asian Americans and Asian communities around the world. Um, it's a very complex idea that we are all sort of unpackaging uh, and it certainly comes from a lot of different external forces and some internal forces. I'm, I'm curious, we think of the most silenced in our community and this also brought up some intersections of things like uh, class and you know women who work at places like spas, massage parlors, nail salons. 
what has your own experience been, you know, being adjacent or knowing um, people who have mothers and aunts and sisters in those types of businesses, especially since the stereotype is always that they are literally on their hands and knees, you know, doing people's nails. I mean, those people are the hardest working people. They, I'm sure like it's so tiring just doing things like the little, the nails are so small. Can you imagine like working on those? And they do eyelashes, they do all these beauty services. They take so much work and they don't even rest. Like they're working the whole time. These are the, like the hardest working people. Why attack? Like, I mean, you shouldn't attack anyone, but these are like, they don't deserve that at all. Like, it's so sad. Yeah, I mean, just to piggyback off that, I, I do a couple of my mom's friends have worked in salons or own salons and um, nail salons, hair salons. And it's just what you said. They're on their feet like 12 hours a day, if not more. And then they still have to do all the duties of being a mom. And yeah, they are definitely like the hard work, hardest working people that I know. Yeah, it exposes a lot of vulnerability within our community. We um, discussed the the Asian monolith idea about deconstructing that, you know, that you, you can watch the documentary, um, but things like the model minority myth, things like that, uh, idea of everyone being lumped together, uh, it completely erases, uh, the people who are the most vulnerable, especially in the recent attacks from the women in Atlanta to the elderly who are also just kind of on their feet going about their day, not trying to bother anybody. Um, this also really, you know, segues, well into this conversation about being an Asian woman and that idea of feeling, um, even within our com own communities, uh, a sense of, of keeping your head down and being quiet and making yourself small. Do you remember the first time you ever felt like someone was teaching you that or that you felt that you were reacting in a way where you made yourself smaller than you wanted to be? Yeah, I mean, I think the it's just like something you that becomes habit is making yourself smaller and i think that goes with being asian and being a woman mm -hmm. like yeah. i feel like a lot of women generally like the habit of of saying sorry after everything even if it wasn't your fault which yeah. i i have to admit i do that like constantly i'm constantly in situations where i feel like i do have to apologize even though it's it's not my fault and i think that just goes along with the habits we teach women to just be meek and apologize and uh yeah do you mind if i ask if that came from not just society but also your parents um maybe maybe a little bit i mean my i think when it comes to my mom she definitely also has that habit of uh being very apologetic and mm. um it's so interesting, like before I like came out here to do this uh, podcast with you, she, um, I think the way we process trauma can be like not the healthiest. And I feel like the way she has been processed to, or taught to process trauma is um, like she told me recently that uh, one time when she was uh, a kid, like her and her family went out for a family picnic um, and she lived in this, not in LA, but like in the Bay Area, kind of. Um, and she said that someone threw like a Molotov at a bush, like while they were picnicking. Um, and just the way she said it, I was taking it because she had never told me that before. And she had never 
really spoken openly with me about like trauma she's experienced or like horrible things she experienced growing up. Um, and I was, I guess what also shocked me was when I was like, well, have you ever told anyone? Have you ever like gone to therapy and maybe talked to someone about like, just like that horrible experience? Um, and she, her reaction was immediately like, well, I was a kid, so like, it, th that was like what she said to me, and I was immediately like, well, just because you were a kid, it doesn't mean it wasn't traumatic. In fact, like, it clearly stuck with you, and I think she's constantly uh, in the place where she feels she has to explain away something traumatic that has happened to her and um, isn't really, doesn't feel she's allowed to, like, talk about it or process it because she's worried of coming off as as weak or um, mm -hmm. just not strong enough. Like, mm -hmm. yeah. Have you seen that in your own experience? For me was, um, that's I think more of the mental part, which is crazy. We need to talk about that more in the Asian culture in general, because I yeah. feel like we, in our culture, at least how I experienced it is, mental health isn't really taken that seriously. Mm -mm. Um, in Cor when I was growing up in Korea, I didn't know anyone who talked about a therapist or, and I, I come here and everyone has a therapist and yeah. everyone gets help. And in Korea, that wasn't even a thing. Like if you say you have even anxiety, they look at you like you're a crazy person. And I think it's getting way better now. It's just the older generations and we have to get better at that. But for me, what I personally struggled and still struggle with, is just like physical safety um, it's, it happens with being a girl, being a woman already, right? And um, just walk, because I have to walk my dog at night and stuff. And when I have to, I usually do it with my boyfriend, but when I do it alone, it's always like, like scary, something's gonna, someone is gonna pop out. And now being an Asian woman on top of that, it's even worse. And I can't even go to like a place where there's a lot of people alone because I'm scared something's gonna happen. And like the whole physical safety thing, like we should be able to feel safe especially when there's people around, but we don't because of so many things happening around us. And that's sad, but. And we should also point out that people should be allowed to feel safe too if they happen to be quiet as well. Yeah. I mean, I, a lot of what I'm trying to encourage in our community is more outspoken, you know, engagement, but that isn't true for many of the people who died in the shooting. It's not mm -hmm. true for our elders. And certainly for, as we're hearing a lot of ways that women are especially raised in our cultures. C Kathleen, did you have any stories about when you first felt like you were supposed to be small? Honestly, I can't think of what trained me to be that way, but I do know that untraining it has been really difficult. Like even just speaking out of turn or not yeah. even out of turn when people didn't ask me to speak or I didn't like raise my hand is so, <laughs> it's so difficult for me. And I mm -hmm. found, I think we talked about this, like, you know, with my ex-business partner, it was something that she noticed. And I think, um, made me seem like not competent or you know not intelligent because when we were in like pitch meetings like she was very she was a very very good speaker and very articulate and like a good salesperson and so I just kind of let her take the reins because if every time I did want to say something it felt like I had to interrupt her and yeah. I just could not bring myself to do that like That's me in it zoom was, meetings <laughs> I, I cannot talk because when people are talking I feel like uh, <laughs> and then I can't talk because everyone is talking. I mean, let's call it out right now. The listeners who are used to hearing the, the typical um, three straight white men. Well, maybe four. Hey, Miles is here, too. He's been wonderf <laughs> wonderfully um, running the podcast. And then myself. Some people have pointed out like, oh, Eugene seems quiet or he seems <laughs> off. 
I think 90% of that time, it's just because of, um, this isn't true for all Asian men. Many Asian men are very misogynistic, but I'm also gay and I'm very sensitive. And so uh, I was taught to listen first and to wait my turn. And then when I can say something, after I say something, I have to then shut up again. And, you know, even me as like a full-blown cis man, like that still happens in my experience. Uh, so this might for listeners be the most... Um, <laughs> considerate podcast between speakers, uh, no, but like Alex, when mm-hmm. have you felt that in in your life? I think it's it's always kind of been there. Like I was never directly told like don't speak, keep your head down. But I was always taught to respect my elders. Like that was a mm-hmm. big thing in our family. You respect your elders, um, and I was also taught to stand up for myself. But it was also just like looking differently from everyone else and being a woman. Like I think inherently we kind of learn to keep our heads down and not um, start any trouble. Um, And to kind of reference like what you were talking about, like it goes back to my mom's upbringing as well as talking to her last night about just her experience with all of this and um, anything that she wanted to share. She told me a couple of stories, but she immigrated from Korea with her family. um, I want to say early seventies to Virginia. um, And they opened up a family restaurant Um, And she was telling me that on the weekends they would um, have like live music and have a bar. So like to bring in more customers and the white people in town didn't like that, um, didn't like that there was Asians that had a successful business. So there was a big group of white guys that would go every weekend, go into the bar and harass people, harass people in the parking lot. So no one would want to go there anymore. And it got to a point where my mom's older brother, my uncle um, was attacked by six white men in the parking lot of the restaurant and he he was attacked really bad he had to go to the hospital um and they went to court for it and which i think like is not something they normally would have done anyways but it was so bad and like there's a police report they ended up going to court and he was found at fault because he used the f-word what so because he cussed Mm mm-hmm Wow. Even though they attacked him, he said the F word. So oh my God. he was found at fault. And so, and I well, think. fuck that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is that elementary school? I yeah. Like, yeah. You can't say the F word. And so, and I think that also goes back to what you were saying, where like Asian families specifically, like don't talk about mental health. And I think my mom went through a lot of trauma growing up and like losing family members. And it's something that you don't talk about. Like she didn't talk about in her family, like there'd be a death in the family and then no one spoke about it. Like they grieved for a day, they moved on. And so I think it also, you never really are able to deal with your trauma, but then you also pass that down. Like growing up, I think I've gotten so much better at communicating, but up until now, like I, if I had an issue or something, I would never want to bring it up or mm-hmm. things like that. I think um, when people hear something, because it sounds like, you know, we we approximate our relationships with this idea of whiteness. Mm-hmm. I want to uh, make the caveat that we're not specifically speaking about white people. Or when we say white supremacy, it's not white people are white supremacists. Otherwise, we would have no white friends and everyone has white friends. <laughs> it's uh, literally look at the brand I have. Um, <laughs> it is the systemic influence of history bearing down where a specific group of people were not only in power, but abusing those who were marginalized. Mm. 
Alexandra, you have a unique experience, especially being of a mixed background. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure this is also something I've seen stories from people who are um, Asian and adopted. Uh, within your own upbringing, mm -hmm. especially since your mother is of Korean descent and your father is white, did you see both gender and race play into the ways in which they they sort of taught you lessons or the way that they even like managed their own space, the world? How did you see that in the home? Initially growing up when I was younger, we didn't talk about race a lot. Um, and like I always knew I was Korean, and I was proud of it. And I think the difference is just growing up mixed, like we had good relationships with both sides of our family, but like my dad's family wouldn't see as much. My mom's mom lived with us, um, which is like a very Asian thing to do. Like when your grandma gets older, she lives with you. She helps takes care of the kids. Um, but my mom did teach me to like, you always do your best in school. You do the absolute best. You always look your best. Um, I think there's a big weight placed on being perfect. Um, and I think a big part of that is because you are also kind of representing your culture. You don't want to let the culture down. Um, and there's also the stereotype of like, Asians are good at math. As Asians are really smart. They get straight A's. And so when that's put on you, it's so much pressure, even if it's not directly coming from your parent. It like the feeling is there. The emotions are there. Um, and I think my mom never spoke about it in a way where it's like, you're Asian, you have to do things differently. But I do think there is an extra pressure placed on like Asians are good at math, like always look your best. It was it was a lot of that. Certainly um, the model minority myth is at play. And mm -hmm. what we learn as we examine it more is that the approximation to whiteness that Asian Americans are painted as gives us certain affords us certain privileges sometimes, mm -hmm. but it doesn't protect us. And yeah. In fact, it can really, really damage us. So we're going to speak more about that right after this. So going back to the Atlanta shootings, mm -hmm. the perpetrator, the mass murderer, ended up being a white male. The awful police conference that happened afterwards, because already there was a question of, is this a hate crime? Is this racially motivated? Uh, the, the parroting of what the perpetrator said was, not only did he just have a bad day, which we won't even get into that yet. Uh, but he saw the spas and the people who worked there as places of sexual temptation that needed to be eliminated. What and how have you experienced this feeling? Because it goes into a very long history of the idea of being an Asian woman, especially in the eyes of a white man. When have you felt that tension? When have you felt that belittling and when have you potentially felt that sort of endangerment? I would say when I first moved to LA, I really like understood what the term yellow fever was was referring to because I was experiencing it on like a daily basis, I think. Because well, you grew up in a predominantly Asian community, right? Well, there were a lot of Asians. There were a lot of Asians, but also, you know, I feel like when you're younger, it's not like, I, I just feel like it's not as prevalent, like it's not as a prevalent of a concept, you know? Yeah. And I also didn't really date when I was younger, obviously. When I was <laughs> <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> so, um, yeah, when I, when I moved out here, especially working in the music industry and, and, um, I want to say there's a lot of guys that fall in that category in the music industry. Um, I, you know, got involved with a couple of them and 
it was very apparent, obviously, just by their track record of only dating Asian women that they clearly had this, you know, whatever issue, um, fetish, whatever you want to call it. Um, but in some ways, like, I don't know. I don't know if it was just like the self-esteem and self-confidence I had at the time. It wasn't very high that I just allowed myself to be, you know, part of this, part of, part of this relationship that obviously like wasn't really based on what a real relationship should be based on. Um, but I do know that for that time period of my life when I was getting involved with, with men like this, it was one of, like, I I've definitely was really unhappy and like really insecure. And it was just apparent in that like I would stalk their Instagrams like at any event, like one was a DJ at any event, if there was like any Asian girl, like even in his vicinity, I was like terrified. <laughs> and I am like, I will say I'm an inherently jealous person, but you know, the person that I've been dating for the past few years is like a photographer that shoots like very sexual images of beautiful women and models. And like, although that wasn't, I had a jealousy issue towards the beginning of that. It's like, it was like lighting a match compared to like a bonfire to the type of insecurity and jealousy that I, I would feel like just completely out of control when I was like dating these men that only dated Asian women. And I, I was just actually reflecting on this when I was thinking about, you know, filming this podcast and like how different of an experience that was. And like, I haven't even fully processed it, but I do know that like, yeah, I think I was, I was just not feeling good about myself at that point in my life. But isn't that crazy how, so many of us, especially as we, you know, get got out of high school, we started dating or seeing what the scene was like. There was a very like common agreed upon thing that it was okay that particular um, people, especially white men, had a fetish for Asians. This is mm -hmm. similar in the gay community, and that that it almost bred competition between Asians, which is strange because at that point we are agreeing upon that this person is objectifying us like regardless of how attractive we are or how much we personally connect with them it is just on the core basis that they are attracted to something about asians what do you think in those cases that fetishization mm -hmm. what are they attracted to i don't even know it's <laughs> it's just i mean it's so crazy that the the yellow fever thing is just like a common like a common experience i think we've all had like mm -hmm. I, I mean i think jenny yang literally has a stand-up about a guy who had a sword <laughs> that she like went on one <laughs> date with um but, oh, white guys who collect katanas yeah yeah, yeah that, that's what <laughs> it's a thing it's a thing wow i'm glad i haven't had that experience <laughs> it's just it's just something we've all been through and it's yeah. i mean it's it's sad but it's also just like I don't know, ridiculous in my opinion. And I really, I mean, I, I guess like if when you look at like how we are portrayed in media, it becomes more clear why this is a fetish uh, for so many white men, I guess. Um, but yeah, I, I just, I guess it just like when I started dating in high school, it surprised me how much it, would come up um and pretty unabashedly like yeah. there was no yeah. hiding it for a lot of no. people no. i would so many people think it's a compliment like, no i know i got that yeah. too yeah cutting to the core of a lot of this yes. is they think it's a compliment have you experienced that well one of the guys that i dated 
I I mean, I got to the point where I just started point blank asking people like, how bad is your, your yellow fever on a scale of one to 10? Oh, on the first <laughs> because I just got to get it out of the way. But I remember talking to one of the guys that I was dating about it and he was like comparing women to cars and was like, <laughs> well, Asian women, it's like getting like a Toyota where it's like, or something, you know, reliable car that's going to last you a long time. Oh my God. Because like, <laughs> yeah, because like, you know, I mean, because we t- like tend to like age more gracefully or something, I think he was trying to say. Yeah, that that was a conversation <laughs> I actually had. So Toyotas yeah. that are like reliable for families, mid-sized sedans, but not glamorous or interesting at all. Just, you know, ride it for like 15 years. Right. <laughs> yeah, you can have your car for a, lo- a longer. I don't know. Oh my God. I just like... I don't know. I was young. I, that is the thing is that I actually had like, I think a lot of self-loathing at that time that I didn't address because mm-hmm. how else would I have allowed myself to be in these situations? One of the guy was like, one of the guys was, and he wasn't like physically abusive, but he was definitely like emotionally abusive. And like, I was, you know, fine with him having yellow fever, him being emotionally abusive to me, him forcing me to drive home drunk one day, like, yeah, God. because he had to wake up early for okay. a call. <laughs> yeah, no, it was, yeah. So anyways, Jeez. but again, I, I think it comes down to the fact that like, yeah, I don't know if I was something, you know, related to my identity or not, but it definitely like a- allowed me to be in a space that I shouldn't have been in, you know. Well, it's dehumanizing. It's a power dynamic that yeah. um, many Asian women and from my gay Asian experience, we accept that we, we are, so we, we, we're weaker, we're agreeable, you know. Um, yeah. And if we're not, we're the opposite, which is also bizarrely sexy to them. Like, you, do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it's dehumanizing not to lo- allow a person just to be somewhere naturally in the middle. This mm-hmm. goes back into historical context of, you know, the the wilting flower, the butterfly, the lotus blossom, that stereotype from like Madame Butterfly from Miss Saigon, sacrificial lamb, you know, and then you also have the dragon lady, you know, <laughs> the idea of a, 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 a sort of menace who's also very sexual and inviting and tempting and there to sort of steal your soul mm-hmm. um have you ever felt like you were cast in either of those sort of lights in your experience with with guys kind of um i actually wanted to go back i related to both of your stories um especially when you said you had a lot of self-loathing growing up it's i think growing up mixed i had a lot of issues with this um but i felt like i never really belonged like i wasn't korean enough to hang with the koreans but to the white people i was like foreign or exotic or like people literally told me all the time like oh what are you you look exotic which I think they thought was a compliment um but like growing up I didn't look like anyone like not only did I not look like the Asians in media like I didn't look like anyone that I knew except for my sister um so it with that it came a lot of like not feeling normal or pretty and so I think that when I got older I feel like in high school was the first time I heard the phrase Asian fetish And at first, and I do not think this is the right way to respond, but at first I was like, oh, there's people who think I'm cute. Mm -hmm. Like, that was my first response. It's like, someone thinks I'm attractive. Um, And like, I quickly learned that's not right. And it's it's a disgusting term. And it's people, I don't know if it was the time, because it was like 10 years ago, but it was something that white guys would proudly say, like, oh, I have an Asian fetish. And they Mm -hmm. would say it to you. Um, And they would ask you questions like, I always got questions about like how strict are my parents because Asian parents are usually strict and I didn't understand it at the time. And I think they were, it, it was a way to sexualize me, which I did not understand at the time at all. And I think there's a lot of like, this is gross, but like, 
anatomy of Asian women is talked about a lot and it's been brought up to me like it's a compliment, mm. which is like horrifying. Um, and I think getting older, I like came to terms and I met a lot more people who looked like me, which does help a lot. And like you realize that your Asianness like doesn't define you or your beauty. Um, but I think as I got older, I saw a lot of like, it just became more prevalent to talk about Asian fetishes. And we even had someone in our friend group talking about, this was a few years ago, but he was saying how he's attracted to Asian women, um, which is totally fine. But he was saying he loves Asian women because they're obedient. And he said it as a joke. But when he said that, I was just like, Are you, do you not know I'm Asian? <laughs> like it, it was really upsetting. Yes, that's, that's <laughs> super upsetting. Um, for me, I mean, it's like the typical thing. I mean, we get catcalled all the time, right? Any woman mm -hmm. doing, I mean, I'm sure all of you have had someone call you, hey, ni hao to you. Like, they don't even know who you are. And they just say these things and think it's a compliment, too. They think like, well, we we're just asking for your number. Why aren't you happy? We're giving you attention, that kind mm -hmm. of stuff. The catcalling has always been there. And I kind of got used to it. It's not even like a problem anymore. But for me, it's like um, one I didn't experience anything like that because I luckily I was very lucky enough to have very diverse friends. Even when I came to LA, like I had friends um, from Asia, I had friends who grew up in America or Asians who grew up like like Americans and other American friends. So I was okay with my friend group. But once I started getting kind of known online through BuzzFeed, that's when I really experienced it um, by strangers online. Because my friends have always been supportive, but the online people, I mean, they can be trolls all the time. But first, like, um, I, so I dyed my hair blonde in a BuzzFeed video and it was totally for a video. It was called Asians Go Blonde for the First Time. And I thought it was such a fun video. And I, I mean, I'm still blonde now. I love it. <laughs> I loved how it looked on me. But then I started getting comments saying like, oh, she's trying to be white. Like she... Like she's dyeing her hair blonde because she wants to be white or, and I'm like, no, I just like the hair color. Everyone dyes their hair. Like, why can't it be this certain color that I like? So I had to deal with that for a while. I was like scared to even go back blonde because I was scared people were going to say that again. And now I just decided to like, fuck it. I'm going to do whatever I want. But that was annoying. And then people try to tell me who I should and shouldn't date. And that's because of the yellow fever thing, mm -hmm. Asian fetish being so known to the point that they automatically assume if you date a non-Asian guy, mm -hmm. they think that guy has yellow fever, even when they don't. Like I've been with my boyfriend for five years now and we met in college and it wasn't like, oh my God, he only dated Asians before he didn't. He's from Germany. He's like dated Germans before. <laughs> so, and like people automatically assume, oh, it's because he has yellow fever. Oh, you have self-hate. Oh, you're yeah. ashamed of being Asian. And it's like, no, like let us date whoever we want. It's not because, I mean, there are definitely people with yellow fe uh, fevers, of course, but, and to the point that we have to ask each time, like, have you dated an Asian before? Like, I, I definitely <laughs> ask that too. <laughs> but it's not always like that either. So we're, I feel like we're so categorized, like who we should, I shouldn't date that people online try to tell us what to do and that's so upsetting all the time. But it's weird that this day and age that like mixed race couples, like it's even an issue. Um, and even now when I go, my dad is white and if we, he and I go out to dinner or like go out <laughs> shopping or something, we get so many looks because we don't look alike. And so we kind of do get dirty looks like people think Oh, no. I'm like a male or a bride or like <laughs> oh, it's it's God. that kind of situation. Like we always get stares 
every time we go out and it's really uncomfortable. Both my sister and I have gotten questions like, oh, are you adopted? Like, is your dad your real dad? Um, so that's always been super prevalent. And for me, I never truly felt comfortable until I went to college um, because I went to college in Hawaii. And that was the first time in my life that I wasn't the minority. And there was so many, like it's mainly um, Asians that live there. And there's a lot of mixed race people. Um, and that's why I first heard the term HAPA. I didn't even know HAPA was a term and it me- means mixed race and it's usually Asian and something else. But like, I kind of felt like I found my community there. Um, so that was the first place that I felt normal and like I could just fit in and I wasn't, I wasn't sticking out in the crowd. Like me and my white boyfriend can go out and it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't a spectacle. It was normal. There are times still where I'm just like, oh. It sucks that I'm dating a white guy. <laughs> like, you know, like, do you ever have that feeling? I'm like, sometimes I'm just like, wow, am I like just like fitting into the stereotype well, of like. Those online comments made me feel that way, but yeah. I shouldn't feel bad who I'm dating, you yeah. know? Like, we shouldn't feel bad. We should be able to date whoever we want as long as it's not a fetishized thing. Of course, that's bad. But if yeah. we know it's not, we shouldn't be able to, we should be able to feel comfortable. And I was before, but until I got this online comments, I was like, wait, is this a bad thing? And I started thinking about it. And now I got like more used to it. So I just like don't care about it as much, but it's sad that we have to care. Yeah. I just sometimes feel like I'm like, am I dating the oppressor? Like, <laughs> am I like- oh, That's a real concern. But I think that there's a conversation like through line that is the, I think centering, particularly in American culture of whiteness. Like the idea is the rules that have been in place, the history from when the first war brides, you know, were married, when the first uh, stereotypical portrayal of like a Miss Saigon type is put on stage mm-hmm. or on screen, then people use that as a reference point. So whether uh, we all have many healthy, lovely relationships with white men that mm-hmm. exists, like it's it's what we're discussing are those moments that are unfortunately like not talked about enough, not not challenged enough, especially in person. Because how many times when a white man tells that to you in person, did you kick him in the knee? Like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. that's that's where we get to this point of, mm-hmm. ah, so we're always going back to this idea that whatever those in power have written about culture, even down to the fact of there are many interracial couples that happen to be white and Asian mm-hmm. that are totally normal. Um, many people can still stop and just think, hmm, she must be really, really submissive. Yeah. But on the topic of white boyfriends, I believe someone here can't relate right now. <laughs> and we'll talk more about that with Aiko after the break. So Aiko, we've been talking a lot about experiences coming up against some uncomfortable situations uh, when sort of compared to or put in the, the company of, of white men. What, what is your sort of dating experience? Ooh, um, <laughs> boy, uh, well, I have dated white men in the past. Like, uh, I think in high school, I only dated white men, but that's because there was not really that much to choose from. <laughs> um, and I, when I was started dating, I grew up in an area that was like mostly white, uh, and the school I went to was mostly white. Uh, which is interesting because all my friends, um, currently that I still have from high school and middle school, uh, we're all minorities, (laughs) like we're black, we're Asian. And, um, I feel like when you do grow up in a, a, a wider area, 
you kind of have a habit to like drift towards people who also feel like minorities and also feel sort of othered by the community that they're in. Um, but yeah, I gosh, dating. I, I mean, I wouldn't say I'm with my current boyfriend because he's Asian, <laughs> but it, it has been a refreshing experience to date someone who understands like the experience I had growing up. Um, and I, I guess like a lot of the white men I have dated, I, I haven't had the best experience of just like, you know, like I had a boyfriend, uh, in high school who was like, who also was like, yeah, I like, I really like Asian women. And like, oh, no. he even was like, oh, the porn I watch is all with oh, Asian no. women. Oh my God. And I was like, no. we didn't have to, we didn't, we don't have to talk about the worst thing oh we can God. Do. You're welcome. <laughs> Awful. Yeah. I think, um, you know, what's interesting is in the gay community, it's it's quite similar. So this idea of misogyny, it translates across, you know, sexual orientation, identity. It's, it's, it's present. This idea of like what the sort of male dominant force is. And you've heard the term from like popularized by Grindr, no fats, no femmes, no Asians, right? Mm -hmm. So that term is like discriminatory in a multitude of impressive ways in one sentence but that used to be on people's profiles for dating yeah. because they don't want the triumvirate of what's like unattractive to the white male dominant that's very masculine sort of macho uh gay sort of idolized figure which would be if you're a feminine asian male who's happens to not be the thinnest or ripped most ripped guy and what's interesting is that brings up some, it's almost like some of gay culture, you see it on Twitter sometimes, people making fun of white gay culture. It almost like you would think that it would create more empathy towards issues, like the fact that you are actually being misogynistic when you say you don't want a feminine guy. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a lot of inbred uh, sort of internalized homophobia. But that idea of essentially like doubling down on your whiteness, your masculinity, and your size, it is crazy how like it's a huge problem in the gay community. And it's almost because it's only these men who only are with other men hanging out with other men. That's why you, half the time you see hot white guys with their boyfriends, they look exactly the same. Mm -hmm. And so it is uh, interesting because when I started, I actually, here's the fact is like my current boyfriend is the only boyfriend I've ever had. I never dated I was very social, but I was undateable because mm. I approached the scene, Kathleen remembers, in a drunken rage because <laughs> I was so already like messed up from grumping in Texas with feeling othered and bullied for being Asian. And then I thought like, wow, everyone in uh, gay LA in a big city is going to accept me. And then I was even somehow more tokenized because mm. then I became the one attractive traditionally attractive Asian friend that they would say, oh, this is my hot Asian friend. He mm -hmm. can come out with us. So then it was this, again, this reference point they kept using where they're saying, in my mind, Asian men who have been traditionally emasculated and feminized in contemporary society at the same way that Asian women are hypersexualized and made ultra feminine in their minds, in their minds, I was like the, the, the exception to that rule. Mm -hmm. But when I look back, the people who were most attracted to me um, would basically say, oh, you're not like other Asians because yeah. you speak out. You're not like other Asians because you're mean and 
you're messy and which are all true <laughs> but Asians are also very mean and messy and outspoken like these are real I was a really fully flesh person and that really fucked me up which was why I didn't go on a date until I was 25 and then, then I happened to date my first boyfriend who I've been with for over almost 10 years wow. yeah wow. that's great which is crazy but do not do not want a time warp back to previous pre-25 Eugene was <laughs> a mess yeah but I think, um, you know, what we're, we're talking about is this um, lingering tradition, I think, of this hyper-sexualization, this sort of typecasting of what it is to be um, an Asian person, especially when in context with with prevailing whiteness, what it is to be an Asian woman. Um, have you ever felt, you know, especially looking at the shooter's motive in Atlanta, the um, that strange feeling of that that hypersexualization, you know, that feeling that you are essentially like an object. Has that ever come up for you? Uh, I wanted to talk about a point that you brought up that I that I was thinking about a lot, which is, you know, being kind of the exception mm -hmm. and how I feel like um, some of the racism and misogyny that exists that's not like like overt, like, you know, someone going on a shooting rampage or, and stuff like that are, are the people that say things like that. Mm -hmm. And there's so many, like, people in my life, some that are still friends, some that, you know, I don't associate with anymore, but have said things like that to me that, that they're like, Kathleen, you're like, no, but you, like, don't look like other Chinese mm -hmm. girls. So, like, that's why you're hot. Or like, no, but you're like the coolest Asian that I know, you know? And, and it's like, they're trying to compliment you, but then it also you kind of like internalize this, like you feel special, right? Cause you're like, okay, well I'm like better and I'm special. I'm like the accepted one. So then, but then you, it turns into this like internalized racism, internalized misogyny and all this stuff that like, I feel like that doesn't get addressed a lot too, because I, I feel like that's a little bit, that's like much more prevalent than mm -hmm. like the overt, like going to be punching people in the street kind of racism, like in misogyny, like this is just like, if you talk to someone and you ask them if you thought they're racist or misogynist and they've said these things before, they'd be like, no, I'm definitely not. But it's like you can point down like X, Y and Z. Did you realize when you said this, this is where this is coming from and this is what you do to other people when you say stuff like this? It's just as damaging and perhaps more insidious these days when people think they're going against stereotypes by mm -hmm. pointing out how you're not the stereotype. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but all you're doing is adhering to the stereotype so yeah. that's something i think people should and it's something that people forgive very often when talking about asians in particular because yeah. people use asian kind of like an adjective yeah like uh you're just not very asian yeah, yeah, yeah you know you can't really we're we're checking people rightfully so more when you think of other marginalized communities you you don't say that yeah to someone without someone being like mm, excuse me <laughs> yeah we need to really watch exactly what you're saying but people are always just like uh she's so asian he's so asian mm -hmm. you're not that asian and you know, I wonder how much back to where I was saying, like, that kind of comes down to this feeling of being treated more like an object or an idea and less like a person. And now K-pop is so big. So whenever it's like they're trying to compliment you, it's like, oh, you look like a K-pop star. Oh, you could be a K-pop star. And everything is K-pop, K-pop now. And like, yeah. I'm very proud that like Korea is doing so well. Like, K-pop's doing getting more well known internationally. But also like to be always compared to that, and then you really need to be perfect because they all look perfect. So that's also like another stereotype that we're living with now. Yeah, I agree. I feel like every single food babies video we do i usually look at most of the comments and every single one is comparing me to like a k-pop star 
which is flattering, but at the same time, it's always like one of a couple because those are the only ones that people know. And <laughs> it's, I don't know, it's interesting. Like it's, I don't know, it's not necessarily a good or bad thing. Like it is flattering, but it's also like, we were talking about this earlier, how now that Korean culture is popular and K-pop is popular, it's become like cool to be Asian again. Or for the first time, like when I was growing up, um, besides like the fetishization of Asians, we weren't celebrated in any other way. Mm -hmm. Even like Korean barbecue is so trendy now in L.A. That wasn't the case when I was growing up. Like if I brought Korean food to school, it was like, oh, what are, what are you eating? If my friends came over and my, my mom pulled out kimchi, it's like, oh, what does that smell? <laughs> Which it is kind of stinky, but like. It's, no, that's a good stink. Yeah, I love the smell. <laughs> it's. Um, it, it's interesting that it's trendy now mm -hmm. and growing up like you just didn't have anyone to relate to um and I remember my my little brother he would always ask in elementary school like you know how you wake up in the morning your, your eyes are kind of puffy or swollen sometimes and he'd always ask before he went to school like oh are my eyes Korean today because he didn't look like his friends he only had white friends so he was just very self-conscious or just very self-aware of like that he looked different and I think now it's celebrated like the girls think he's cute because he looks like a k-pop star <laughs> but before it was something that I think he worried about even as a little kid like six or seven years old uh, it's interesting we should point out that the Asian community we, we've been umbrella termed it's vast uh, we at this roundtable happen to be more of East Asian descent uh, which is also more of the focus of a lot of the tax east southeast asian and um some pacific island communities um certainly with east asia with um k-pop k-dramas anime manga the um some like films coming out of china there is a more global appeal that has kind of only been on the rise for maybe the past decade and i think what people are also kind of forgetting is and I know we have a lot of K-pop fans as listeners. Um, they're literally called idols. They are also trained and raised to be perfect versions of Asians. And when they are the only reference point that people have, that people continue to put on a pedestal, it is, and I say this with a grain of salt because we like any representation, very much like Crazy Rich Asians, the film, it is taking one step forward and then as a culture, especially in regard to other marginalized groups, it brings us two steps back. And there are very distinct examples, even in things like K-pop, in film, in culture, of anti-blackness, of not considering the ways that, you know, that perfect shiny image affects Asian kids, affects, I mean, this was the craziest comment I think I've ever seen tossed my way, which was there was an argument I saw online of someone said, oh, Eugene's really attractive. And then this um, K-pop fan who is not Asian was like, well, I know how Asians are supposed to look. And Eugene has what? a really big face. He has small eyes. He has a wide nose. That's not like what Koreans find attractive. Asians oh don't find God. that attractive. <laughs> Which I was like, I mean, I guess right now, sometimes right? But it was, she was very much being like, Eugene's ugly too. Yeah. Like that was, it's kind of like, um, you know, when people see the alternative or the diversity of that, mm -hmm. they're one reference point of like what they think is the, unfortunately, the model Asian mm -hmm. is an impossible 
impossible standard. And bless those K-pop stars because they are working their asses off. Yeah. <laughs> they yeah. have the most strict diets. They are not allowed to go out. Um, it is very sad, actually, many of the situations. But we kind of forget that whenever you are looking at something that is propelling purported excellence, you forgive it more than something that is saying, uh, say, associated with crime or associated with something that they think is dangerous. This is, in a lot of ways, more invisible, but equally dangerous to the way that our communities are being appraised and and regarded. Yeah. I know how Asians are supposed to look. I got Wait, a lot what? of that growing up, especially being mixed and being, I've always kind of been like naturally curvy, even like in middle school, like I developed kind of early. And so I always had this weird relationship, an unhealthy relationship with my body where like I was hypersexualized by people around me because I developed early and not treated appropriately by older men and teachers and things like that. Um, but at the same time, I also kind of felt like an outsider from my own culture because I was already half. Um, so I felt like I didn't fit in, but I was also not the typical like small petite Asian. I was tall, I was curvy. And so it also just made me feel like I wasn't truly Asian. And I also got comments from people like that, like, oh, like you have a you have a bigger butt than most Asians do, or you're tall for an Asian, or things like that, or like your nose doesn't look like an Asian nose, things like that. Like I would always get comparison comments saying that I I looked more white or more Asian or a certain way for an Asian. I got a lot of that. That too, uh, oddly, like I I mean I've I was I feel like I'm I was in the same boat where I mm -hmm. developed kind of early, and I'm generally kind of like a bigger person. Um, and it's weird hearing like compliments and also like people saying like, well, your body shouldn't look like that. And I think it's yeah. just, I mean, it's not just common with Asians, but women in general of like being told that like, well, you're not skinny enough or like you, you're a, a bigger girl. So you must've given up on your appearance, um, which is like, that's, it's, pretty common in LA, but just like the way our culture is built around this beauty ideal that is um, not just uh, a certain way for women, but it also depends on like whether you're Asian or black or yeah. like mm -hmm. um, white, like what your body ideal is supposed to be. It's interesting too how we've seen this a lot recently with like low-race jeans coming back, but I think we're realizing now how fashion trends aren't just fashion trends, they're body trends. Mm -hmm. And so I think also like probably all the time that we were growing up in high school, like the heroin chic look was in, like being very thin was in, eating disorders were trendy um, with celebrities. And so it was like that on top of you're supposed to be tiny and Asian and petite, kind of like just wrecked my self-confidence. But then now it's trendy to be curvy which is like, I guess, great for curvier girls because we fit into clothes now. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's always that comparison of like, you don't look normal for your race or you don't fit what the beauty standards are at the time. And body ideals constantly shift through time. They shift between cultures. I think the the tough thing that we're seeing is that who who is sent, who's the reference point? Who's the reference group in American culture or now in global culture? It's typically been the sort of average white perspective. Then- 
objectifies every other group and that has become our standard reference point. It's like, what does an Asian woman look like? What is her body like? She's thinner, she's more petite, she's flatter, like these ideas. And then those are the things that people say, that's why I'm attracted to this person. The same thing with the obsession over black people's bodies, over Latinx people's bodies. This is, it's a, it's strange because it really, like if white people can get to a point where they're like actually saying like, I know this about you because you have red hair. Like the, the, the lengths <laughs> of assumptions culture can make about you because you're com- from a completely different ethnic origin is crazy. Like I, and it, it creates a really hostile environment because people look at your body or assume things about your body first, which I think is tied deeply to sexualization. I think on the flip side for Asian men, we are often joked about for having very small penises. That's like the thing we were all grew up with. And so I think about now things that I, my process was always to like bury it, things like this, and then make jokes about it. And I actually made like a whole comedy bit about this, but now I'm like, was this funny? (laughs) Um, Like when I was a kid, a lot of the kids were obsessed with trying to see my penis because I was the, the only Asian boy. So they would try to see how small I was. And this was like kindergarten through oh like in elementary school. Yeah. Oh, that's so messed up. And the worst was the worst was I had this bully who he would actually follow me with his friends into the bathroom and stand behind me at the urinal trying to pull me out so I can he can should have peed on him. See it. Yeah. <laughs> so I actually later I might have said this to you, Kathleen, once, but I'm I'm like, I'm so good at holding my pee. Like I'll be on like a road trip and I'll be like, <laughs> oh, I do you not. Have to yes, I, oh right. We'll be driving somewhere to like pause strings. I'm like, I do not have to do go to rest stop. Yeah. And I think if you asked why, I'd be like, hmm, I don't remember, but I would not um I wouldn't pee at school. Sometimes I'd pee outside when I was walking home because oh, I was oh so God. afraid that this kid would follow me because he was so obsessed with like how he was told my body looked. Mm. It's crazy. At such a young age, he already knew that stereotype. Yeah, he already was taught it somewhere, and it was informed. And so, even me is like, you know, I'm. Uh, I think I had a unique experience in some ways because I was in a community where I was like one of the only Asian people. Mm-hmm. So it was like very easy to sort of just target. Um, but I can't imagine, especially as like a woman, you, the associations with being already more submissive. And then to be slight of frame or then to have very disgusting things I could bring up that probably some men say like, oh, you must be this way. That's why I'm attracted to to you sexually. Yeah. Have any of you experienced that sort of hypersexualization? Oh, before? for sure. I think, um, I mean, we've kind of already touched on it, but I think just growing up in the body that I did, I was hypersexualized from a really young age. Um, and I remember my dad used to like yell at people in the streets for like, coming up to me or staring at me or like kind of snickering and making comments about me. Um, And I think as just even as women, we're not believed when it happens, but especially Asian women, I think we are kind of taught to not speak about our traumas and like keep our head down, keep going. So there were incidences even in high school with like teachers. I had issues with teachers sexualizing me and like, making comments about me and I would go to the school about it and they they wouldn't do anything. They're just like, we can't do anything because nothing physical had happened yet. Um, I was on the track team in high school. We had an issue with one of our um, coaches. He was inappropriately touching us and I had brought it up to someone and 
nothing really came of it until a lot of us like got together and brought it up. But it was it was just another incident of like just being hypersexualized from a young age and like a lot of it having to do with the fact that I'm Asian and like like even getting older, going to like college parties, frat parties, you get people coming up to you guessing like what kind of Asian you are um, and like making assumptions about your body. So I think I think that's something all women have to go through, but I think Asian women specifically have to deal with the stereotypes and people thinking that they're either very submissive or really, really sexual. No, it's, I mean, again, it goes back to that, that butterfly dragon lady sort of mystique that I think is, we're talking about a lot of personal experience, but Mm -hmm. the reason why the Atlanta shootings were so, it, it echoes within us is because we're, we're part of the same tapestry, especially from a cultural perspective, like regardless of any sex work that actually happened to those businesses, sex work is a valid way to make a living. It Mm -hmm. is a very realistic way that many migrant women have to make a living. And it has existed in places like Asian run businesses. Like that is something that, and there's a very dark history there already rife with colonialism and uh, the sort of military might of American Asia Pacific that goes into something that we don't have time to go into. But that feeling that the shooter's motive regardless of if uh, the 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 poor victims who were who ended up being killed had anything to do with sex work his idea of them his idea of the places was that they were riddled with sexual temptation that they were like the way people used to talk about opium dens you know back in the the 1900s and the way that we um first saw like uh the um any sort of asian actress who was cast in a role she's either the temptress or she's wilting like sidekick these are things that are pervasive and that we've all been exposed to and then you see the most perverse version of that festering in someone's mind like that killer and he decided that the only way he could solve whatever ridiculous problem he made up in his mind was to target Asian women specifically. And there were strip clubs near there too, but he didn't He was in those. Atlanta. Yeah. There's strip yeah. clubs everywhere. The best strip clubs <laughs> yeah. in the country. That was really good that, strip yeah. clubs too. <laughs> like, honestly, like the best strip the clubs. The best strip clubs. <laughs> honestly, like really, between that, and, between that and Portland has really good strip clubs. Yeah. yeah. I've heard that too. Really yeah. good strip clubs. Yeah. Um, but that was something that really angered me was that, I mean, that whole statement that that stupid detective made about basically trying to excuse the shooter's mm-hmm. actions. But it really angered me that he even brought up that this guy allegedly has a sex addiction because it was insinuating that these women were sex workers. Mm-hmm. And whether they were or weren't, it was too early, I think, to try and excuse away the Asian hate by saying that they were sex workers, especially when there was families grieving and there was children that lost their only parent. And now it... I don't know, it just taints their parents' memories because they had hardworking immigrant parents who came here for their children. And now that detective almost insinuated that, like, not that they deserved it, but, like, they were sex workers and he had a sex addiction and, like... Because there's already discrimination towards sex workers. Yeah. 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 And the unfortunate thing is that even without the motives, the ridiculous motives that he said, things like gender and race and class... And line of work, they are all intrinsically linked, especially at a place like a Asian-run spa. 
you know, these are things that have a lot of culture and biases already against it. His, it was almost like, unfortunately, I think that conversation would always have come out at some point around it. And it's unfortunate because people are using that as a reason to like discount one of the aspects. Oh, it wasn't misogynistic. Oh, it wasn't racist. Oh, it wasn't against sex workers. It could be all three, Bob. It could be (laughs) all of the above. And that's the problem is people are again reducing the way that we are in this society to very narrow-minded views of the actual rich experiences that these women lived, you know? And they can be many things. They They can also not be many of those things. And it doesn't matter because in the end, all we heard was, I have a sex problem. I had a bad day. I need to eliminate this temptation. And that is, again, what are we doing? Centering the story and the narrative and the media on this white man. I mean, it's also like, I don't know if we have time to go into this, but it's also just so upsetting to see who gets to get that empathy from the police department. Mm -hmm. Like black men don't get that empathy. Black women don't get that empathy. Asian women, sex workers, they don't get that empathy. But a white man who killed eight people gets that empathy. I was watching, I never watch him because I hate him, but I saw this Tucker Carlson clip yesterday that someone sent me and he was reporting, reporting on the shooting and he started off by reporting the facts. So at first I was like, okay, this seems to be going all right. And then he went into this whole tirade about how it wasn't an Asian hate crime. And he made this comment that made me so mad. And he said, like, we need to, like, look into his history and his background, his upbringing to see how he became this way so it doesn't, so we can learn from it so it doesn't happen again. And they, he would never make that comment about a black person, like a Hispanic person, an Asian person. And it's like, if like if someone terrorizes the country, which is what this guy did, like they if a foreign person comes in and there's an act of terrorism and it's not, oh, what was his upbringing like? What trauma does he have? So we can learn from it. It's this person is evil and like he has to pay for it. But Tucker Carlson was not excusing it, but saying like he had issues. Let's let's learn from his issues. And it's just, it's not a conversation that happens with anyone that's not white. It's centering the white man mm-hmm. again. And, you know, I think I, I would like to end with not having to bring up the the presence of white men. Sorry, Miles. <laughs> <laughs> Love you. Um, you know, we, we've talked about two extremes, the sort of hyper-feminization and sexualization of Asian women, and then the the emasculation of Asian men. And I know, Kathleen, you had some thoughts about how misogyny is also sort of bred within our cultures. And that's something we have to also rectify with without contextualizing it in, say, a white American scope. Yeah, because I was I was thinking about kind of misogyny that I've experienced in the workplace and misogyny that I like my friends have experienced in the workplace. And some of the most egregious things that have been done to myself or my colleagues have actually been from uh, like Asian men. Mm. And, you know, when you were telling your story, obviously your experience growing up, I it's so different from mine as an Asian woman, even though we're both Asian, right? Um, and I think that maybe that's where a lot of this starts. But like, for example, one of my, well, my business partner, um, she used to work at a very prominent uh, Asian record label. Mm-hmm. And the CEO 
um, had tried to humiliate her on on an email once because she was trying to offer her point of view, just like give advice on, you know, a release that she thought could be done a different way. And he ended up like CCing multiple other people in the in the company that weren't even originally on that email and said something to the effect of, there's a reason why you work for me and I don't oh work for God. you. What? Yeah. And there, that's just one example of like many that um, I've heard from actually the same person and from other people at that company. And it's a lot of times it's, I mean, it's Asian men doing it to Asian women. And like, I mean, she quit. She doesn't work there anymore, obviously. But, but the, all the stories I heard, I was just like so upset because it was like, it's like hard to check that because it's like, mm-hmm. we're both Asian. It's not, you know, it's not like you can go go to the HR and be like, oh, this is happening. It's, yeah. But it's very clear. It was like a pattern. And it's like, I don't know. It's, it's, I feel like it's almost harder to address because mm-hmm. we're, you know, it's not as obvious. We're also trying to like protect our ourselves. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that also sometimes includes protections for people who don't necessarily deserve it in those situations, especially men who are being misogynistic, even within Asian culture to each other. We don't haven't always brought up this, but this is so important, which is the patriarchal systems that already exist in the thousands of years that places like China, Korea, Japan, many of our Asian um, sort of countries of origin have been terrible on their track record in terms of their treatment of women in the home, through the government, and especially in places like work. Did you ever see that or felt that? in a similar way to what Kathleen's talking about from, say, Asian men that you've come across? Uh, for me, not Asian men specifically, kind of just all men, I think. Um, just being a woman in the workplace is hard anyways. I think in this industry, I'm sure you guys have like dealt with this too, being a woman in production has been difficult. Um, and I remember when I first started out, like I wanted to quit because most times I was the only woman on set except for maybe like the hairstylist or makeup stylist. Um, And you just are not treated with the same respect and you're just kind of treated like you're dumb. Like even if you're smart, they won't ask you to do physical things on set. Like when I was a production assistant, no one would ask me to move things, even though that's what I was hired to do. Um, And I do think being a woman in the workplace, you have to, you're kind of taught to really watch what you say because you don't, if you're too nice, then you're ditzy. And if you're too harsh or if you're too straightforward, then you're a bitch. Like there's kind of no in between. Um, so I haven't dealt with Asian men specifically. And I think a big part of it too is there's not a ton of Asian people in general in our industry. I mean, obviously we all are, <laughs> but like as long as I've been in this industry, I haven't worked with a ton of other Asian people. I've seen a lot of it in homes, mm-hmm. like in family homes. I've seen a lot of times the father being very closed off, clearly dealing with a lot of his own trauma and issues. And we brought this up at the beginning of the podcast, like there's no outlet for him. Clearly the men, especially in Mm -hmm. Asian cultures will not seek therapy. Mm -hmm. They uh, notoriously men also die without friends. (laughs) It's the saddest stat, but it also explains why the festering of things that cause explosive behavior is so dangerous and why men have to be more emotive and connected. And unfortunately, a lot of Asian men in, in our enclaves, they from also for very young age, they're also fighting not just this feeling of being, you know, uh, a, a, a emotionally stoic, strong person, but then they have the American aspect of then feeling weak and emasculated by other men. So some of them overcompensate. I'm sure you've seen this all the time, Kathleen. It's like yeah. the, it's like the, te- there's so many like tech bro Asian guys who are mm-hmm. just so like, they're like, you know what? I'm going to 
outwhite yeah. you with do you, do you know what yeah. i mean like no, they get that's what so felt, aggressive yeah, yeah. yeah especially in the situation that i was referencing that's what it feels like it's like okay now you're in a position of power so you're able to kind of like flex these muscles and now you're just gonna overdo it because you can and like nobody can check you then you surround yourself with other like yes men who are like in this you know of similar mindsets and then it just festers and becomes like just the accepted culture there it's just really crazy but i mean yeah, I think it, a lot of it has to do with feeling like the need to overcompensate in some ways. Yeah, work can be done at home where sons, brothers, fathers, you got to engage with the women in your family. You have to engage with the other men in your family. Like it's really important that it starts at your dinner table. Mm -hmm. And I was very fortunate to have two very strong sisters and one very strong mother. And um, I'm also gay as hell, but it was <laughs> it was certainly an environment where we were always exchanging our experiences regardless of gender. And I think that's really important. Aiko, is there anything that you want to sort of tell the audience about what they can do to help or what they should be thinking about when we move forward and keep talking more outspokenly about things like anti-Asian hate and discrimination? I, I was lucky enough too to grow up in a family where like my thoughts and my feelings were always like listened to and my parents are like very supportive and very open to talking about like um any problems or any like trauma that I've experienced and they've always had that open ear so I think just like fostering that communication and fostering that support is really important, especially with the um, conversations moving forward, especially about this issue is I think we just need to support each other in this because it, it it's really hard. And I think when you open up and start talking about it, you realize too, just like how much, how many levels there are to it and how much you've experienced personally that is related to this horrific thing that's happened, so. Uh, yeah, just to add on that, I think that having conversations are so important and it sounds so minimal, but I still have so many friends and family members who don't know what's going on, um, which is why like, I post a ton about it on Instagram and I'm sure people are tired of seeing it, but I'm going to keep doing it because it has sparked a lot of really good conversations with um, with fellow coworkers, old coworkers, not current, but um, old coworkers, friends and family who are just genuinely curious and they'll say things like, I had no idea this was happening. Why did this start? What's going on? Um, and it has a lot to do with like the political rhetoric around it and gently explaining that to people because I think to people who aren't experiencing it, that particularly sounds like a scapegoat to them. Um, so I think just speaking to people about it, having conversations and like letting people ask you questions. And I think even I at times get a little bit like irritated because I'll get in conversations with people and they will offer a counterpoint. But when I think when I get so emotional about something, I get a little too sensitive and I say, I don't know, I think I get offended too easily. And I think from their point of view, they're just, they're just offering a different point of view. Um, but to kind of wrap up that thought, I think <laughs> it's, uh, it's really important to have conversations and like post about it. And all, all the attacks are, that are happening, like repost everyone that's happening. It'll start conversations. It'll, it'll make people wonder why is this happening in the first place. Yeah, I think speaking about things is very important, whether it's social media, whether it's in person, sharing things so more people are aware. Because if you don't share, then you won't know. 
And I think we really need to unite everyone, not just Asians, not just white people, but every race, because I see so many comments and other like, for example, black activist pages where people are like, well, I didn't see Asians merge for BLM or why should they, should we help them when China treats black people this way and things like that. And it's so disheartening because there are obviously so many bad things happening around the world. But one, not all Asians are China or the Chinese government. And there's Chinese Americans and Chinese citizens who are pro BLM, pro anti-racism like all there's so many people and you can't generalize mm -hmm. everyone and even in the asian community there is anti-blackness so yeah. there's just so much divide overall and everyone needs to just see that racism is bad it doesn't matter who it happens to anyone can be racist and if we can just unite on that thought i think it'll be so much better yeah and just kind of piggybacking off of that i think when you invited me to uh, speak on this podcast i had to do a lot of self-reflection um, just so that I had like enough material to talk about. Yeah. But it made me realize like a lot of these things that I, I don't think about them often. Um, you know, there's not that many opportunities for discourse, but also like it made me think, you know, in what instances like have I been potentially like perpetuating, you know, racism, sexism, um, you know, in in myself and in my friend group. And, and I think, you know, we all could do, we all could, benefit from that you know like I think a lot of nowadays in this like woke culture we're like it's kind of like us versus them and like you know we're like the millennial gen z like so woke we like <laughs> you know what I mean like we're you know intersectional all of these things but it's like I think we all have things that we can learn from we all have you know um, experiences that we can reflect on and and learn from and be better about and it's not necessarily us versus them it's like we all can be better mm -hmm. you know yeah and i think i'll end this with kind of again recognizing that the five of us are of east asian descent many of us grew up more middle class and in this country and even though you hopefully have learned a lot from listening to us there are again a, a huge myriad of perspectives and backgrounds of other asian people that you need to also start engaging with we're hopefully just giving a little bit of a taste of what it's like to hear a conversation between people who are really ready to engage. Because when we say open up, speak up, and have a conversation, it's not just agreeing with someone because it's so easy to agree. And it's so easy just to sit back and say, I'm going to rest on the system and my personal biases. It is so hard to constantly open up, reach across aisles, across color lines, across gender lines, and say, hey, I see you, I recognize your differences, and I'm trying to learn, and I want us to have a conversation. That is what we are talking about. And we, at this point in history, have such a unique opportunity to do that with the amount of access to information and people's voices that we have. That's what's different. Our parents and grandparents who fought during like the Civil Rights Movement, they didn't have as much of that type of access. So we have the, the, the opportunity now to be able to make an actual real difference in the world. So I would love to thank my four amazing guests who came today. Y'all are brilliant, awesome. Should never say sorry if you don't feel sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Asian women, take that to heart. And um, if you haven't seen the documentary, check it out on the Try Guys YouTube channel. It's called We Need to Talk About Anti-Asian Hate. The video is in association with GoFundMe, who's done an incredible job aggregating a lot of grassroots movements who are dedicated to helping Asian American communities have more safety in a progressive way. So just remember, if we are going to stop Asian hate, then we need to talk about anti-Asian hate. <laughs>